Oh, yes. Good evening, everybody. That's not going to be the new uh, standard intro to the show, but I'm back in my studio. I'm back with decent lighting, air conditioning, and the corner of the office where... Um, <laughs> I'm going to get it out of the way right now. So everybody who comes in, where's Barnes? Okay, B Barnes, we're doing it tomorrow night. Unforeseen, uh, unforeseen delays, and we're going to do it tomorrow night. Tonight, I call up Grobear and I say, look, I, I, we're not going to reschedule the Sunday show because people come. And although many people are going to come and be very angry that they don't see Barnes tonight, they should be satisfied uh, that they're going to have uh, an equally intelligent encyclopedia of a brain replacement only for tonight, Mark Grobear. And it's Mark Grobear and not Eric Hunley together because this is an interview Questions. This is a subject that I have wanted to discuss with Mark Robert for as long as I've known that he has been heavily involved um, in addiction, in recovery. I, I, and I don't remember when I discovered this for the first time, but I, I called Robert after I read uh, or listened to Russell Brand's, I forget what the name of the book is. Is the book called Recovery? Anyhow, he's got insights. And I, this is not going to be a discussion from a perspective of gossip. And yeah, I'm not interested in gossip. We're going to have an interesting discussion about this. We're going to talk about a number of other things. Trump, DeSantis, politics, some law. Uh, but if you don't know who Mark Robert is, you're going to know after tonight. He's amazing. Now, the thing is this. We're not also getting away without starting with something that's going to make your stomach turn. Uh, I'm going to do a little, a little intro rant. Someone who might make you want to vomit as much as <laughs> Trudeau, but it's not Trudeau. I'm going to thank my sponsor because many of you have seen now that um, this show contains a paid sponsorship, which it does. And then I'm going to bring in Mark Robert. So now hold on. We're going to start with something, something, someone who might make you want to, you know, give you a visceral reaction in the same way that uh, Justin Trudeau does, but in a, in a bit of a better way. I, I still think he might, he might, he has his moments of funniness, but he's unhinged. He's unhinged permanently irreparably damaged from this mental medical diagnosis, which I believe is an iteration of actual issues called Trump derangement syndrome. Michael Rappaport, people, you may remember him from such classics, True Romance. He was Dick Ritchie in True Romance. He was in Copland. I forget who he was in Copland. That's all I can name right off, off the bat. To say he's been deranged by the Trump mind virus is an understatement. Listen to this. Who cares that more people come out to see pig, Dick, Donald Trump? By the way, just remember, this is not the first time he has referred to Donald Trump as pig whatever. When he refers to Marjorie Taylor Greene, horse mouth or something along those lines, he uses the same stupid insults which with each and every one of his online rants. But wait until he says at the end. Who cares that people come to his yes. rallies? Who cares? I'm taking to Twitter to tell everybody. Who cares? Who cares? Uh, who cares so much that I'm making an unhinged rant on Twitter? We have better things to do. It's the middle of the fucking summer. Go to the beach. He's channeling an AOC vibe without the AOC elegance. That stupid camera shake, like a TikTok camera shake. Get a tan. Get a tan. Go get sit a tan. Sit in air conditioning. Sit in air conditioning. Don't sit on the internet complaining about who cares because it's so worthless. Nobody should care. And here's how little they should care. Here's me unhinged for 35 seconds. Who gives a fuck that more people come out to hear this motherfucker say the same bullshit over and over say and over and bullshit. over again. 
Yeah. Look at all the people that come to the rallies. Who gives a shit? Listen to somebody say the same thing over and over and over again. I once had a discussion with a, a brain scientist person, not my wife, who's a neuroscientist, if you don't know. And we were having a discussion like, is there a brain difference between a, a, a right wing brain and a left wing brain? I now believe there is. I'm not in the shape, maybe in the size, bada bing, bada boom. Left wing, progressive, Democrat, liberal brains uh, lack self-awareness and they lack humility and they lack um, the ability to have self-deprecating humor because they take themselves too seriously. That is the defining characteristic as far as I've seen. It's not, a, it's not, a, it's not true of everybody. It's just true uh, as far as I can tell of a, a lot. Lack of self-awareness. No reflection, no insight, no say, hey, maybe is what I'm saying about, you know, is my critique of Donald Trump true of myself? Okay, rant over. We're going to be live on YouTube and Rumble and vivabarneslaw.locals.com. We're going to end on YouTube, go over to Rumble. And then we're going to end on Rumble and maybe have a little exclusive after party with Grobert if he's got time on Locals. Before I even bring in Grobert, my goodness, I forgot to bring in the, um, the sponsor of the evening, people. Oh, yes, when I was driving... I drove from uh, West Virginia, the Clarion Hotel at the intersection of Harper's Ferry. I drove from West Virginia to Florida, to just north of Miami, in one day. 1,700 and some odd kilometers. I don't know how many freedoms per eagle that is. All day. Left at 6.45 in the morning. Drove all day. Got home at 11.15 at night with a kid in the car who was amazingly good, save a couple of meltdowns that we both had. And two dogs, Pudge only pooped once in the car. I couldn't get vegetables anywhere. I was on the road driving from Montreal down to Florida. I, fresh vegetables? What's that? McDonald's doesn't serve salads anymore. Oh, I had to go to a Subway and just say, I don't want a sandwich. Just put the stuff you put in the sandwiches in a bowl. Don't put anything on it. Don't put onions in there. If there's onions in there, I'll, I'll destroy you. That's where I got my dose of vegetables. Oh, my goodness. Many people don't know you're supposed to have five to seven servings of raw fruits and vegetables a day. And most people do not have that, especially if you're driving and you can't get fresh fruits and vegetables on the road. Uh, field of greens. It is desiccated greens, not defecated and not an extract, not a supplement. It is pulverized, dried up fruits and vegetables, power fruits and vegetables. One spoonful equals one serving of fruits and vegetables, all the antioxidants, all the good stuff. Uh, it's a great company made in America, USDA organic certified because it's a food. Not a supplement, not an extract, not that there's anything wrong with that. I prefer this. Um, it tastes great. If you can believe it, it looks like swamp water, but swamp water is rich in nutrients. It tastes delicious. You have a spoonful of that twice a day. You've got two servings of fruits and vegetables. It's a healthy habit to have. Uh, and when you can't get raw fruits and vegetables because fast food, it should be illegal for a fast food chain to not serve salads. I'm not a communist. That should be illegal. All right. Anyhow, so that's it. Thank you. Um, uh, as always, go to fieldofgreens.com. It'll, it'll, whatever you, it'll push you to a Brickhouse Nutrition website. Promo code Viva, you'll get 15% off your first order. Um, I think it's organic. I'm not sure if that's a joke. I'm pretty sure it's organic. Uh, the, the, the Field of Greens. Anyway, it's good. It's great. The link, if it's not there, it will be in the pinned comment. No, it's in, it's in the description. So that's it. All right. Grobert has been waiting patiently. Last time, warning. Tonight, Barnes not here tonight. Tomorrow night, five o'clock, uh, will be the Sunday night show on a Monday. Tonight is Mark Robert, Lord Buckley, America's Untold Stories with Eric Hunley. For those of you who don't know him, 
Grobert, you ready? Coming in in three, two, one. Booyah, sir. Hold on, let me bring you out here. Bring you in. What's going on? There, do we like this better? I think we like this better. Yep. So first of all, Mark, yes. uh, you look you look clean shaven. You look at you look ten years younger than the last time I saw you. Well, you're putting me on the spot here. First of all, I'm not Barnes. I just want to make I, Barnes is a rock star. I'm a piker. He's one of the great thinkers in America. I am just a guy who worships him. I've been asked to come in by Viva out of the bullpen in the first inning in a in a game where Barnes couldn't make it. I feel like I'm under a lot of pressure to try to make this work. There's a lot of hate in the room already. People are in their <laughs> underwear. It, they're looking on how did this guy get in here? It's double barrel Jew action today. This is not going to go well for the, the Nick Fuentes mob is already circling the building. <laughs> I, I am not Barnes. I just want to say that I am doing Viva a favor. See the show tomorrow. I've come in at the last minute. Please don't hate on me. I'm just trying to help out. Thank you. Uh, first of all, you sell yourself short, but I know, look, I, <clears throat> maybe you don't appreciate what an encyclopedia you are. Like Barnes is... He he is the smartest person I've ever met in my life, and I, and I'm not saying that to flatter. I agree. My I agree. No, no, no. I agree. I, it's it's intimidating. I worship. He, I am a big fan. I am. He's one of my political heroes. I he's put me on. Because you know, I, Alex Alex Jones. I mean, he's done so much for me. I mean, I, this is the least I could do for him for not being here is filling in. Well, and no, and when I say like, first of all, I'm going to get to flattering you in a second. But like when I say Barnes is is truly smart, it's it's not just retaining knowledge. It's contextualizing knowledge and it's something yeah. that i'm incapable of doing like i cannot contextualize the information with the era and he can do that by reading books by 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 appreciating the zeitgeist of the time in order to contextualize the information that he's able to retain and it's amazing that being said i'm still, go you, I'm still going over his rant about barbie and i'm a film school <laughs> graduate and i I'm, I'm still analyzing what he said about barbie well, that being said, uh, Grobert, you are, uh, and I said this also, you're not to minimize and say you're like the brain of, of I say Hollywood, you, you are the brain of also consp conspiracy theory history, because it is not to be minimized as conspiracy theory. You, you have a brain as well that when you recount stories, you retain information, you walk through the rooms of the house in order to relay that information that you've gathered. So thank you for coming on uh what did you say what did you text me you said it was two live jews <laughs> which is two well, live crew you, old... we, i did a yeah there was a two live crew remember that uh oh, yeah. crew? we yes. i did uh the, i put on when i was at national lampoon as an editor we put on uh we we're invited down in new orleans to tulane and loyola to put on the world's largest toga party uh with otis day in the nights and blah 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 it was a huge thing it was a huge uh, charity event at tulane on the football field and um that's a subject in one of our episodes on America's Untold Stories of Ember. I want to see, see that. But the night before, we put on possibly one of the worst show business um, performances in the history of show business. Myself and the group dressed as Hasidic Jews with fur hats that we got in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, went down to the Deep South and put on a Yiddish rap group performance in front of a Southern crowd that had their mouths hanging open. I can only say like the the producers ep uh, segment of um, the producers where they put on springtime for Hitler Viva and they were just staring at us like we were from another planet, but we called it two live Jews. So that's where I got the reference from. When I was growing up in my, my first, my first grandmother, my, um, my mother's mother, grandma Ruth, she was a very, um, is the word crotchety? She was a, she was a cranky old lady. And we were in a car. It was in Florida, actually, when we were 13 years old, and we were <clears> blasting <throat> two live crew. And then she says, what is this music? Is this two screw? And I, we never <laughs> forgot that. 
Um, Robert, for, for those who don't know, I think everybody does know, and I, I just I I jacked up your mic a little bit because apparently my okay. low. Thirty thousand foot overview. <clears throat> I mean, people people know who you are, but just just in case. I mean, uh, investigative reporter. I worked for uh, Village Voice, LA Weekly, for about fifteen years. Screenwriter in Hollywood. Uh, book author, Rehab Nation, the inside uh, story about addiction in Hollywood. Um, you know, I wrote scripts about the CIA. I've been involved in Hollywood as a writer, producer, and occasionally director uh, since the early 90s, I want to say. Starting out in New York, coming out here in the mid-90s, and um, been doing TV, produced a lot of stuff for HBO. I produced theater in New York, Mambo Mouth with John Leguizamo. Produced Mo Funny Black Comedy in America, the 90-minute documentary for HBO. If anybody wants to still see see that, uh, the history of African American comedy. Produced a bunch of stuff for HBO, and as a screenwriter, I've written screenplays like The Recruit uh, with Colin Farrell and Al Pacino, which ended up in federal court uh, with the CIA, which I got a settlement uh, in that case regarding the CIA rewriting my script, which is part of the episodes on America's Untold Stories. Uh, an episode you can see on there involving me that I do with Eric Hunley twice a week, Tuesdays and Fridays. Now we've been doing it for almost two years, apparently coming up in October. So it's, it's been a quick two years, man. It, it's, it's crazy that um, two years and I don't know how long I've known Hunley for now. Uh, and you is the, um, what you're writing about. I don't want to say anything that it's not public, Mark. Uh, are, you are an aficionado of JFK conspiracy, correct? Okay, so I don't know, aficionado. I mean, a couple of years ago, um, I worked with Oliver Stone on a five-part miniseries called Oswald, which was a 10-hour miniseries that I wrote with Oliver overseeing the writing as a director-writer with me. And we went around town trying to shop this project. And the shopping of the project alone is worth a documentary because of how many deep state operatives were in the room. We went to every single place in town. Uh, it became an event, just me and Oliver going around trying to sell this project, uh, which was never sold. Uh, however, it bonded me with Oliver and I did a couple of other projects for him and uh, with him. Uh, one on LBJ um, that we haven't made and uh, one on RFK uh, called RFK Must Die. Um, about the assassination of RFK in 1968 in Los Angeles. And we're going to, we're going to start with that before getting into, I, I told Hunley before we went live, I said, don't be offended. I didn't invite Eric as well. Cause this is a subject that I've been wanting to talk to you about. When I first got to know you, I had no idea your experience, uh, your authorship and your involvement in addiction and recovery in Hollywood. And I don't want the gossip. I want to talk about the principles about all of this. We're going to get into that after we get into the RFK, but after we flesh this out, you wrote a how many part miniseries or, or on the Oswald one is five two hour scripts on uh, Oswald beginning with his childhood and going um, to his death. So it's it's about 10 hours worth of material, 600 pages long, which we're going to try and do something with for this 60th anniversary. I'll just give you a teaser on that. It will involve these 10 hours of um script that I've written, and we're going to try to do something really um, technologically advanced, let me just put it that way, for November 22nd of this year. The teaser is out there, but now let me ask you the obvious <clears> question. <throat> you were shopping it with Oliver Stone, who has uh, credentials of his own, and people right. didn't want people didn't want to buy it? How, how does that work? 
Uh, it works on multiple levels. It works on financial levels. It works on subject matter levels that are too hot to handle, Viva. It works on, you know, people picking up the phone saying we don't want it, this to be made levels. I mean, there's a lot of levels, you know, for why a project doesn't get made. In fact, oh. the bulk of uh, the bulk of America's untold stories, truth be told, are failed movie projects of mine. The stories that I put out there on that show, a lot of them are movie ideas that didn't come to fruition because of Hollywood's reluctance to do anything that um, re regular people would find to be interesting. Let me just put it that way. Let me pick on the third one you said, people making calls and you pick up the phone and they say, we don't want this getting made. How does that, without getting into as much detail as you I'll can. Give you an I'll give you an example. We went into a room one time at National Geographic um, and one nobody was there. We went in to have a meeting. There was nobody in the meeting room. And uh, one British kid came in and said, I'm whatever his name was, I'm here to represent National Geographic uh, television. And uh, in the middle of the table was a advanced speakerphone, uh, one of those starfish looking things. And during the meeting, which went absolutely nowhere, we realized that there were people listening on the other end. And one of the stars of the movie uh, picked up the, <laughs> the speakerphone and started screaming into it. We know you're out there listening. Why don't you have the courage to come into the room? And uh, that was Thomas Jane, the Punisher, who was supposed to play General uh, Edwin A. Walker in the Oswald miniseries. And Tom just lost his shit and picked up the speakerphone and started screaming into it. Fantastic. All right. Interesting. Um, <laughs> OK. All right. Let, let's get that. There's a side little story. No, no. It's, well, I, it's, what's amazing is that it's, it's beyond politics. It's beyond economics. Yeah. There's, oh, yeah. there's other, yeah. okay. there's other things gonna... happening. Yeah. Now, I was on Tim Pool Friday night, which is uh, from where the rough area where I drove in 1,700 <clears throat> kilometers yesterday. Uh, I'm not your buddy guy that we read two of your chats that night. So glad to see you on Tim Pool Friday. I brought up a subject on Friday night with Tim Pool. We, we talked about the RFK assassination when we were talking about the initial story of RFK Jr. Uh, being denied Secret Service protection. And I want to just make sure I didn't get any details wrong there. I think Hunley texted me and said uh, some details, but I want to go over that a bit. And here's Eric Hunley in the house. Can we at least get one bushy head comment for Eric? No, too early. For that. Come on, no. get, get, give him some time. That's Eric Hunley, your partner in crime at America's Untold Stories. All right. So, Mark, um, we started talking about RFK Jr. being denied Secret Service protection as his request. They said we're not 120 days out from the election yet. You don't need it, and we're making a public announcement. RFK Jr. Hey, everybody! This mofo doesn't have Secret Service protection. I want to make a meme with that, actually. It should be the FBI pointing at RFK Jr. saying, this guy doesn't have our, a Secret Service protection. And I started talking about RFK Sr., his father's assassination, where Sirhan Sirhan came up, MK Ultra came up. And the details where I think I made a mistake is I said that all of Sirhan Sirhan's bullets, which were being discharged as he was being thrown to the ground, all eight bullets were accounted for. And they did not include the fatal bullets, the fatal shots that struck RFK I don't, in the back of the head. And um, there's some suspicion. I forget the name of the guy, but you'll remember it now, that his newly appointed, I said Secret Service, but it might have just been regular security. The question is going to be, who hired that security? Was it government security or RFK's private security? Uh, that there was gunpowder residue indicating a, like a contact discharge of a firearm. So tell me what details I got wrong there and what the operating theory is on the RFK assassination. 
Well, first of all, the guy you're mentioning is Thane Eugene Caesar, uh, who uh, was part of the security guard force for the hotel. It was his uh, a private security force that was hired by the hotel. Let me just put it that way. Uh, LAPD stayed away that night. LAPD claiming the RFK um, uh, team requested they stay away. That's not true. Um, the security team that was was hired for the hotel involved a guy who was there for the first time, Thane Eugene Caesar. Uh, as soon as he says, as soon as RFK says, and now it's on to Chicago and let's win there, there's um, a movement to get through the crowd. They realize that the, they can't go through the crowd uh, the front way. They go around the back into the kitchen uh, where he is being led by Thane Eugene Caesar by the hand. Uh, on a stack of trays, a tray stacking, one of those big silver tray stacking uh, um, uh, devices, Viva, is Sirhan Sirhan, who jumps out from behind the uh, tray stacking and begins shooting wildly into the crowd. The first shot hits um, a man right in the head, and the other shots, like you said, are shot wildly into the crowd. Uh, while this is going on, apparently, Thane Eugene Caesar takes out almost the exact same gun that is owned uh, by Sirhan Sirhan and puts a bullet to the head right behind the ear at touching or I think less than one inch, according to Thomas Noguchi's uh, flawless uh, cor coroner's report, which he brought in members of each of the military services to oversee, claiming that he did not want to have another Dallas on his hands. This is Thomas Noguchi, the coroner of L.A. County. So in the coroner's report, which nobody read for years, including myself, everybody thought this was an open and shut case, Viva, because there were so many witnesses. So it turns out that the, the coup de grace was a bullet to the back of the head of RFK at, uh, because of the stippling, because you're talking about gun residue evidence yesterday. I was trying to talk talk to you about this. The stippling and the uh, uh, charcoal effect of the gun blast on the back of the head indicated to Noguchi that it was with a half inch or actually touching the back ear, back here of the head right here. There's also a shot uh, under the armpit that goes up into the ceiling, also at the same angle as Thane Eugene Caesar standing in back of him uh, and shooting upward in an upward direction. He spins around RFK, and while he's spinning around, he pulls off the tie of Thane Eugene Caesar, clutching it in his hands, almost demonstrating that this is the man who shot me. And he goes down to the ground onto his back, falling onto Thane Eugene Caesar with the tie of Thane Eugene Caesar in his right hand. As he dies, he releases the tie onto the ground. Thane Eugene Caesar will later come back two hours later to get that tie. But there's photos by LAPD and UPI and Associated Press of the tie laying next to RFK's body. Now, uh, you know, as Sirhan is firing wildly, they're banging his hand against the steam table. And that's why the shots that are all accounted for go into various people in back of RFK. And one of them goes into the divider of the uh, pantry double doors of the pantry. And that is accounted for. That's dug out. Uh, by an FBI agent uh, named Bailey, who sees the hole and will later uh, write about it in his uh, in his memoirs. So you've got bullets in the ceiling. The ceiling panels removed by LAPD. 
You've got the body with the uh, angles uh, of a perfect, what, what many people call the perfect autopsy. Uh, Noguchi is then attacked by LAPD. He's uh, uh, smeared. He's fired. He lawyers up. He gets his job back. Uh, he goes to testify during the case of Sirhan. He's interrupted on the stand and told that he doesn't have to go any further into the details of his coronary, uh, coroner's report. And the cover-up begins uh, at that point, you know, more deeply going up the ladder. And that's like a, a, a just a thumbnail sketch of the event. All right. Now, I'll, I'll, I would not to spend the entire evening on this, just get some obvious yeah. questions out of the way. If all of Sirhan Sirhan's bullets are accounted for, that would mean, was it a revolver that Sirhan Sirhan had? Yeah, that's right. So would that not mean then that it is known or it's relatively easily demonstrable that there were 10 shots fired and not just eight? Well, there's also there's also an audio, audio recording, which CNN itself uh, it said it was 13 shots, 12, 13 shots. And, and CNN played the recording of a, of a Polish uh, journalist who recorded the events. And you can clearly hear the shots being recorded on his tape recorder. Uh, even CNN, I think in 1998 or 2002, uh, tried to get the case reopened. But there was a attorney general in the state of California who refused to look into it, and she uh, is now the vice president of the United States. Hmm. Interesting. All right. And the other question that I had was um, Thane Eugene. What was his name? Thane Eugene Caesar. Thane Eugene Caesar. That's an interesting last name. Um, what was his history? Is his history known? Like his was history was that he... He worked for George Wallace's campaign in 1968. He was a Kennedy hater. He was a known racist, uh, failed uh, uh, security guard. He worked at a, had a defense clearance uh, at um, Grumman and also at um, Burbank at uh, Skunk Works. He was a defense contractor. They said he was a plumber, uh, but he had a little bit more on his plate than just being a plumber at uh, Skunk Works here in Burbank, where they make the U- where they built the U-2 spy plane. Okay, good. So I didn't, I didn't get that. I, I, the only detail I got wrong is I said Secret Service, but he was private security hired by RFK's team. No, 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 no. He was not hired by RFK's team. He was hired by the hotel. Okay, good yeah. enough. Okay, well, that's it. That's, that's the detail that's been <laughs> clarified, people. Um, okay. And everyone out there, everyone watching now, you and Eric have to get on Tim Pool. Because I know, first of all, I, they, they talk about a lot of these stories, and it, it's a must. It's a must. So everyone watching, tweet. Tweet it out. Let, well, just to sometimes- add a little bit more to it, the guy who was shot in his, the first shot that went into a person, went into the skull, the temple of Paul Schrade, an old friend of ours. And Paul Schrade was a uh, United Auto Workers executive who was a big Kennedy family supporter, was tied into the Kennedy family, very close friend of RFK Jr., And Paul Schrade and I kind of bonded on reopening the case. Uh, Paul Schrade passed away uh, earlier this year in the in the mid 90s. Um, And Paul Schrade, to his death, insisted that um, RFK RFK was not killed by Sirhan. In fact, he went so far as to call for the release of Sirhan for almost 20 years. And in fact, I represented Paul Schrade at Sirhan's parole hearing with RFK Jr. a little over a year ago. And that's how I know how I know RFK Jr. is through the parole hearing where both of us testified on Sirhan's behalf. And the parole board agreed with me that he should be released. And in fact, shockingly, uh, they voted to grant him parole. 
The parole then went to uh, Governor Newsom, who overrode his own parole board in refusing to release Sirhan Sirhan, claiming he was still a clear and present danger at the age of 75 uh, to the general public, having served 58 years in prison, possibly longer than any other person in California, save one. And the Kennedy sisters came out and denounced RFK Jr. And the reason it's important is because it has nothing to do with vaccines. It has nothing to do with Democratic or, or any sort of uh, things that he's been tarred by his own family. The two sisters came out and said that uh, that Sirhan could possibly Uber from Pasadena, where he lived, to Malibu and kill them. And Newsom said that this was a clear and present danger and refused the parole of Sirhan Sirhan. Uh, th- that is how I know RFK Jr. Uh, maybe a question I'll ask Barnes tomorrow is why even have another parole hearing if if Newsom is indicated clear and present danger, regardless of what the parole board says, he'll be there for the rest of his life. Well, he, right. again, he was he was found guilty and sentenced to the death penalty. The death penalty was overturned in 1970. He was given life with parole. I just want to emphasize that it was not life without parole. He was resentenced to life with parole and has been turned down uh, over a dozen times for the parole. All right, before we head over to Rumble exclusively, Rumble and Locals, I'm going to just read a few more of the chats that we have here. Passion Moyer says, Lord Buckley, you are not Barnes, but remember, Barnes is also not you. I very much appreciate your long relief appearance. And we got, hold on, what happened here? I got to do the middle innings. I got to do the middle innings. Go ahead. Sure. That's a baseball joke. I get, oh, Mark, I forgot to ask, how old are you? (laughs) I know how old you are. (laughs) You're not answering. (laughs) Sorry, I lost content. Sorry. All right, people, let's go over to Rumble right now. Here's the link. There are 1,176 people watching on YouTube. Migrate over to Rumble, people. Or if you don't want to go over to Rumble for whatever the whatever the crazy reason, come on over to Locals. VivaBarnesLaw.Locals.com. We're going to carry this on now. We're going to go to the second part of your life and your expertise, addiction recovery, and questions I've always wanted to ask you. All right, ending on YouTube, three, two, one. Come on over to Rumble now. Okay, so other than being a, a, an aficionado, is a, maybe that wasn't the right word. I mean an encyclopedia on the JFK assassination, the RFK assassination. And okay, everybody, I, so we've corrected that detail. I was, I was right enough. Mark, do you share my opinion that uh, you know, coming out and saying we're denying him Secret Service protection is if he would even necessarily want that? Okay, is, let me that, just is that a dog whistle? Let me just let me, it's a dog whistle, but let me explain how we got here because it's a long story already but i mean just to sum it up really quickly when rfk was was assassinated at the ambassador hotel on june 4th 1968 uh, immediately lbj who may have been involved in the assassination who said repeatedly i am going to cut his throat if it's the last thing i do lbj said this to everyone around him among his aides for a number of years his hatred for rfk knows no bounds knew no bounds and he repeatedly said to people i am going to cut his throat with his sign of cutting his throat if it's the last thing I do. In 1964, when LBJ was running for election, he had J. Edgar Hoover order 35 FBI agents to cover RFK every waking minute of his life. 1964, this is, he's still in mourning of the death of his brother from 1963. That's how much LBJ feared RFK as a political entity in the Democratic Party. So it's not unlike today, Viva, with Biden and RFK seniors, the reason mm-hmm. I'm mentioning this. Biden, by denying the the uh, F, the protection of the Secret Service, is a dog whistle. But let me just explain the history of it. 
That night, LBJ ordered Secret Service protection for every candidate running in the election of 1968. He was told by his advisors, you don't you don't have the right to do that. And he said, dag nabbit, I'm doing it anyway. And he ordered Secret Service to go and protect these other candidates. The Congress later that year passed legislation that all presidential candidates uh, get uh, Secret Service protection. I did not know that in 19 in, in in 2017 this was changed to where it's now the speaker of the house the the um, majority leader of the senate the minority leader of the senate and the the minority leader of the house and a committee votes on who should get secret service protection I had no idea that this happened I was operating under the auspices of knowing that for 50 years this was the law. This was changed, unbeknownst to me, uh, in 2017, Viva. Well, okay. No, no further comments. It, it is what it is, and it looks like what it is. And it looks yeah. and smells like... Filth. I agree. I agree. Okay. Now, maybe we'll get into some other political stuff later, but let's get into this. So people might not know this. You have a very accomplished... Uh, you know, uh, career in Hollywood stuff, but I don't know that many people know. You published a book on addiction, and mm-hmm. I don't want to get into any details. You'll, t- I'm not even going to ask well, the, no, those again, questions. It's called, it's called Rehab Nation: uh, Inside the Secret World of Celebrity uh, Rehab. So it's it's uh, about the history, the science, and the history of addiction, but it's also about the, the history of rehabs. As a reporter, and just to give you some background, as as an investigative reporter for the Village Voice. My beat was covering corrupt rehabs in Malibu. It's a beat I created as a gonzo journalist out here in L.A., L.A. Weekly uh, being the village voice uh, of L.A. So I created this beat where I would go undercover, uh, Viva, sometimes as a patient, other times as an idiot, and begin to explore these corrupt rehabs that they have out here, mostly luxury rehabs, but there's other ones that um, are not luxury rehabs that are just simply corrupt. So that became my journalistic beat as a writer, just to give you some background as to where this came from as a reporter. Okay. I'm I'm sharing the affiliate link. I'm sharing the affiliate link for the book seems to be only on Kindle on. um... Uh, It's on Amazon and it's um, electronic. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Mark Rivera. The hard copies are gone. Yeah. Yeah. The hard copies, I think are sold out. Okay, here, link to book. Um, so you would go, I know some of these stories because you've talked about them. And, and again, Mark, if I ever ask a question that you, you don't, you should not, don't want to answer, just let me know. Uh, explain the corruption of the rehab industry. Like some people say these rehab. Yeah. Uh, these, okay, yo, run with it. No, no, no. Uh, let me just explain it. Pro- in, in, in the late 1990s, they passed Proposition 36. Proposition 36 was a California initiative uh, to put uh, people in rehab as opposed to incarceration. So because they did this, there was an overwhelming mass movement of people who needed rehabs. In the state of California, in their infinite wisdom, they said that any place that had a septic tank and six beds, could, I swear to God, could be considered a rehab. And I've, I've interviewed them at length about this because they simply wanted to create rehabs out of thin air where they could put uh, former prisoners under Prop 36. So let me stop of, just one question ahead. on that. The septic tank, that means that you could put anything out in the wilderness. Just have you have a septic tank and, and a shack. 
and it becomes it becomes a rehab. Oh, absolutely. But what they was explained to me was they wanted to take a family house. The six beds was the equivalent of a two or three bedroom house, and the septic tank was the equivalent of the size of a nuclear family. Is what they wanted to use as a rehab. That's why they said that. So they were now converting. People were converting houses, family houses, one family house, Viva, into rehabs in L.A. intentionally. That's what the legislation demanded because they were letting prisoners out who needed rehabs by this Prop 36, which passed in California. It was a liberal proposition. Uh, rehab over jails was the motto, Viva. So because of that, the people who were, uh, let me say, celebrities or wealthy did not want to go to rehab any longer with convicts. So that became the rise of the luxury rehabs, the big rehabs that became like five-star resorts. That, that was the Malibu rehab model. That came out of Prop 36 because Lindsay Lohan, and I use that generically with quotes, Lindsay Lohan did not want to go to a, a rehab with guys who just got out of uh, uh, prison. So they created these luxury rehabs here in Malibu, and that became the, what I call the rise of the luxury rehabs, rehab industry, which is separate from the middle class or lower class rehab industry, which is separate. And you said the year was 2000, correct? I think so, yeah. I think okay, so. I, I googled it. So it's it's relatively modern that this this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it's an, they, they, okay. Going back to, I want to say like 1887. There has always been a luxury rehab in New York, for instance. There there was a place where people could go after the Civil War. Just to go back even further, in 1865, when every when the war was over, you had a massive addiction problem to morphine and to alcohol for the survivors of the Civil War because they gave out morphine tablets like M&Ms. So people came out of the Civil War addicted to morphine and addicted to alcohol. They had songs about it, jingles. So a massive rehab industry sprung up, sprung up in the United States in 1865. And one of them was a guy named who ran them was a guy named Leslie Keeley who claimed to have the cure for addiction. And he ran the Keeley Institute, which was the first chain of rehabs in the United States. And he claimed to have gold, gold dust in an elixir that you drank to cure addiction. And this, the reason I got involved in this was because I was into quack science, quack doctors, quack everything. And the rehab industry and addiction cure and quacks goes back to the 1860s. And that, I went down that rabbit hole and it came out in in my period here in Malibu that they were making millions upon millions and millions of dollars with cures for addiction, Viva. And that's okay, where that's... I would go, go. That's where I would go in undercover and do reporting gonzo style journalism, what I called immersion journalism as a reporter by being a patient in these different rehabs. And that became a cause celeb for me as a writer here in L.A. with the L.A. Weekly doing an entire issue one time of the L.A. Weekly, which they gave to me to be the writer of and editor of multiple articles and cover stories of one whole issue on rehabs. Um, so that's where the book sprung out of. Right. And gonzo journalism, for those who don't know, I'll just give the Internet definition. The style of reporting that places the reporter at the center of the story in a highly personal and participatory manner. Uh, who was it that founded gonzo journalism? Was it um, Hunter Thompson? Uh, it? Hunter Thompson. All right. Now, you're, you're, you're hit. what was your life experience like with the subject matter? 
Well, I mean, I look, I mean, it is what it is. I mean, I grew up in the 60s and, um, you know, I was a drug dealer and a drug user and a drug taker. And then it stopped working. So I had to stop using it and um, <clears throat> became a uh, drug counselor. I became a rehab. I, I had my own rehab in Malibu with a bunch of my friends. We put in a recording studio. We had a luxury rehab. We did it right. Uh, we were funneling people through the Grammy Foundation, musicians mostly, uh, into this rehab. And this was before I discovered the corruption of these other rehabs. Um, there was a guy named Felder who was a guitar player for the Eagles. And he got divorced and his wife ended up with the house. And I think she went to climb the Himalayas and she leased the house to us, which we turned into a rehab in Malibu on Canaan Dune Road, if I remember correctly. And that was also in the early 2000s. So I not only not only did I I know the drug business from being on the criminal side, I knew it on the recovery side and I knew it on the rehab side and I knew it as a licensed uh, drug and alcohol technician here in the state of California. So there's multiple levels that I knew this problem on, uh, including so many friends and family members who had been addicted to drugs and alcohol. So I had operated in this world for a long period of time knowing it personally and knowing it uh, uh, operationally and professionally. So it was a multi, you know, multi-level uh, uh, immersion into the field. When you say you did it and it stopped working, I presume you mean it became dysfunctional and not like the drugs stopped having an effect. No, I would say the drugs stopped having an effect. I, you know, I, uh, after a while, you have to take so much into to break even in terms of drugs and alcohol that they really do stop having an effect. You know, the tolerance level becomes so high that uh, there's not an, uh, an amount that you could take that's going to get you. What, what you're doing chemically, just so you know, is it's kind of like the, the pleasure principle. There's a, there's a synapses of pleasure and you're trying to recreate the original high. And that could be sex addiction, it could be food addiction, it could be any addiction. What you're chasing is that first magical feeling that you have from whatever substance you love. And that can is always slightly diminished from the first time you ever did it. But you keep chasing that original rush, that pleasure rush that you got when you first tried or did whatever your addiction was. Uh, I, you shared, I don't remember where you shared the story. I know it's public when you got arrested and it was one, I think the one of the only time or the second time that you were arrested, you had some substance in a book and you gave it oh. to people. Uh, did, I don't, did you talk about that here or was that on your channel? I, I forget already where it is. I think it's on both. Well, I think I talked but, to you and it's in there also. Yeah, I got arrested in, um, in Catskill, New York, ironically, with the same judge that I would later learn would deal with Mike Tyson. And Mike Tyson later became a friend of mine. But we had the same judge, me and uh, Mike Tyson. It was Judge McDonald, this old uh, cantankerous redneck in Catskill, New York. And uh, I had an old traffic ticket or something, and I don't know what it was, but uh, I had to go into the Greene County Prison. And in my car, I was uh, had 150 uh, hits of, of blotter acid, LSD, 150 micrograms in the back of a library book. And I didn't want to leave it in the car, Viva, because they were searching the car. So I put, it was in the pocket of the library book. And I took the book into the prison and they allowed me, they didn't search the book. They allowed me to take it into the jail. And uh, I got a call from a, like a deep voice to come down by the shower. And I thought, oh, this is it. This is where they get you. You know what I mean? And the guy slid a detective novel underneath the bars and he goes, here, if you need something to read, I just saw his hand. So I took the um, 
detective novel and I took it back to my cell and I tore off about 30 hits of acid. Blotter acid is on paper in case people don't know. It's drops of liquid acid on pieces of paper. And it's usually about 150 micrograms roughly. And so it's easily hideable. Let me just put that way. So it looks like a piece of paper. I tore off about 30 hits of that and I put it back into the book. I went down to the shower and I said, turn to page, uh, you know, 420 in the book and the hand disappeared and an hour goes by and all of a sudden I just hear complete bedlam on the other side of the gym. <laughs> and they just all must have split up this acid. There's about six prisoners there, five, six prisoners who were waiting to go to Attica for murder. And it was like a holding area, a holding cell for them. They'd been there a couple of months and they just went batshit crazy on acid in that jail. Um, so yeah, I mean, I didn't take any because, uh, you know, I was, uh, uh, dealing it at the time and who takes acid in prison, right? I, I knew a kid in high school who he said this happened to him. I don't know if it's actually true, but that he had uh, whatever blotter acid in his pocket. It rained and he purports that it got absorbed into his skin. Oh, yeah. And that he, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that he was on, he was high for days on end and was never the same after that. I don't, I don't, yeah, uh, that's true. That could happen. That could well, definitely that, happen. See, that's why I don't even pick up garbage on the street. I, I'm, I'm afraid that I don't know what's in that garbage. Um, okay, now, Mark. So mm -hmm. you, you were, a, a, I don't know if you qualify yourself as an addict, but you, you definitely took drugs. And then was it a hard thing to stop? Like this is some people. No, I was, I was done for me. I was done. It just ran out of gas for me. So it wasn't a hard thing for me to do. It just, like I said, it stopped working. I, I had been a, a drug dealer and a writer and it, it was just part and parcel of my lifestyle, you know, that uh, I would was selling drugs and I, I'm lucky that I didn't get uh, caught you know, when mm -hmm. I got out, just I got out just in time. You know, other friends of mine had done jail time and, and things had happened to them. But, you know, the 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 substances had stopped working for me and I had to go and deal with it on multiple levels and multiple programs for multiple years to sum it up. And so you, you get I mean, is it an accreditation? Do you study? How does it go to be that? Oh, you, you mean for the, for the drug, for the drug counselor part? Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. So you, you have to take a test and you there's all different things to get the uh, you have to be renewed every year. And uh, yeah, it's from the state of California. Yeah. And we are going to circle back to the corruption in the rehab center. I'm just going to get some preliminary questions out of the way uh, in your uh, doesn't need to be an expert opinion. This is a question that I've always had is. Where is the difference? What's the distinction? And how do you how do you um, determine whether something is a bad habit, an obsession, or an addiction? Oh, uh, I'll tell you the definition: a repetitive habit that makes your life unmanageable that you can't stop. It's very simple. A repetitive habit that makes your life unmanageable that you cannot stop, which is where and I have, you, and, uh, you, and you want to you want to stop and you want to stop. It, it, you can't leave out that that makes your life unmanageable. And that's the key of the three parts. It's a repetitive uh, behavior that is making your life unmanageable. You want to stop it and you can't. That's the definition of addiction. Very interesting. I mean, you, can, you can argue as to what, what part of your life is unmanageable and therein lies the rub among m many addicts because how do you determine uh, there's guys I know who went to prison, said my life's not unmanageable. There's people I know who turn down rehab and stay in jail, not unmanageable, lost their wife, lost their kids, been to 26 rehabs. Life is still not unmanageable. It's a self-diagnosed disease. So you have to determine when your life is unmanageable. And on the outside, it may appear easy for someone to say, bro, 
you've been to prison three times. Your wife has left you. You're $150,000 in debt. You lost your house, lost everything. Uh, I think your life may be unmanageable. It doesn't matter what I say to you on the outside. You have to determine that your life is unmanageable. Okay. A, a repetitive behavior that makes your life unmanageable, that you want to stop, that you cannot stop. Yeah. I was just listening to the Anthony Weiner interview with um, Patrick Bet David, and I still can't get over the fact that his name is Anthony Weiner, and he was convicted, or he pled guilty to sending Weiner pics to an underage girl. What, I, where is the line between criminals uh, passing off their criminality, their criminal behavior as an addiction? Anthony Weiner, when he's asked the question, he was on Fox News and he repeated the answer maybe mildly more eloquently on Patrick Bet David, where they say, Have you changed? And Anthony Weiner says, we have a very, um, what do you say, a complicated relationship with the word change in the addiction community. Um, and that, to me, I'm sitting there saying that red flag, hey, one red flag is going off. Pedophiles will always be pedophiles, and they cannot change. And he's basically saying as much, and people you know, probably should, <laughs> I don't know, uh, applaud him for making that admission instead of making fun of him for basically stating that out loud. But where is the line in, in, in hiding a criminal behavior as an addiction? I don't know what the answer is to that, but I mean, usually the courts are involved and judges are very hip to this. Judges have year for years sentenced uh, people that they believe to be uh, uh, sentenced to 12 step programs for X amount of time. Some of them up to two years in sentencing. The judges will determine whether you're going to go to rehab. There's also drug courts, Viva, all across the country where you give up your civil rights and throw yourself at the mercy of the court. Uh, to avoid prison time and you're sentenced to meetings and also to rehab. Uh, the the courts seem to know what to do with uh, repeat drug offenders, uh, criminally, socially, and medically. The courts have dealt with this. And that's what happened in the Sirhan case, because Sirhan uh, shot his gun in a blackout from alcohol. Sirhan had about six to eight uh, uh, heavy, heavy drinks that night really quickly. He And I said this to the parole board that he was in a blackout. And you guys deal with blackout drunk drivers all the time. In fact, one of them was a Kennedy. Uh, one of them was married to uh, Cuomo, the governor of New York. One of them drove her Lexus under the influence of, of Ambien underneath the bottom of a semi-tractor trailer at 80 miles an hour up in Connecticut and pleaded, uh, had a jury trial where her own, uh, where where Ethel Kennedy rolled in in a wheelchair, and every Kennedy on earth came into that courtroom to get her out of jail time. So her situation was a blackout. Sirhan was in a blackout, and that's why he was never able to apologize for something he couldn't remember. And I brought this up to the parole board, saying, "What would you do with a housewife in a blackout who you're asking to apologize to the dead family she crashed into, but she can't remember because she was in a blackout?" And the, the judge in the case said that's a great analogy to me in the case. Uh, sorry, and they, well, actually, let me stop you because you actually did chop out there. Uh, you chopped out for a second just because of the connection. What was the housewife analogy? The housewife analogy, and this happens all the time with parole boards, a woman could be in a blackout drunk. She crashes into a car with a bunch of kids and another, another family and kills them, right? She can't really apologize for the behavior that she can't remember because she was in a blackout. That's in essence what the denial of parole for Sirhan has been for 50 years. The fact that they want him to admit he did this killing when he was in a blackout and doesn't remember doing it. Now you can get into the argument as to why he was in a blackout 
whether it was an MK Ultra brainwashing hypnotic state or alcohol, it doesn't really matter. The fact of the matter is he can't admit to killing someone when he doesn't remember doing the crime, David. And this happens every day in every court in the United States when a judge says you can't apologize for something you don't remember. That's accepted. It doesn't affect your sentencing, uh, but they don't sentence you to life imprisonment for, or sometimes they do, but they can't expect you to apologize for a crime or, 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 uh, a situation where with vehicular manslaughter when you're in a blackout, David, which is in essence yeah. what they wanted Sirhan to do. That's what the analogy I'm making. It's and it's the, analogy, it's the analogy I made to the parole board. Because Sirhan had gone, Sirhan, let me just finish. Sirhan went to AA in prison for 20 years. People don't know this. And he had uh, unbelievable letters of recommendation from the guards, from every prison official for over 20 years. He had no incidents in prison. He kept going to AA meetings, even through COVID. And I said, nobody goes to AA meetings who's not an alcoholic. You just don't go to meetings. And he did. He did. And he knew he was an alcoholic. And he want, they, I offered to help him on the outside once he got out by taking him uh, to recovery meetings and doing that. And the, court, and the, and the parole board agreed. Uh, we just debated the amount of times and how many meetings he needed per week. And we agreed in the parole hearing that he would be released basically into my uh, 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 control to deal with his addiction. Okay. When you just said that, it actually allows me to flesh out the distinction between an addiction, an addiction that leads to criminality and an addiction that is the criminality where, you know, it's the automatism defense in law where somebody gets so drunk and we had this case in Canada, blackout drunk, sexually assault someone. And then mm-hmm. they say, well, you're, you're not, you, we can't even convict you because you lacked the mens rea because you were in a blackout state, whereas the culpability is getting into that state to commit the crime in the first place. And so you can understand the addiction leading to the criminality being one aspect. And the other side is when the addiction is the criminality. And that's when listening to Anthony Weiner saying, I'm addicted to, I don't know what the addiction is. Is it power? Is it adulation? Is it ador- Is it being adored? Yeah, that, I, 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 I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know about the Anthony Weiner case. I know a black dude who knocked out a guy in a blackout. He was in a blackout. The other guy was in a blackout. They got into a fight in a bar. The guy he hit fell down, hit the ground, and died. And, di- and died. He was sentenced yep. to the electric chair. He was sentenced to the electric chair in Sing Sing for a crime he can't remember having committed. He was eventually commuted. The sentence was commuted by the governor of New York. And uh, he later became a, a big figure in the recovery movement, having been paroled and gone to AA and different meetings in prison. Uh, he later got out on a commutation for a crime he didn't remember. But he did murder somebody under the influence of drugs and alcohol. You know, I mean, and he we, was sentenced to the electric chair. We had a case like that in Canada, but the case that case didn't involve automatism as a defense it involved i just wanted to punch him i didn't want to kill him this guy's in another state where i don't even remember wanting to punch him but i certainly didn't want to kill him and then you got both of them yeah I'm the, i i I've, I've made the distinction now purporting that pedophilia sexting your your junk to a underage girl is the addiction there's no addiction that leads well, well, to the let, me, let me let me just, let me just interrupt for a second yeah. before you go down the sideway there's sex addiction and there's pedophilia. It's, it's two separate things. So I, I'm, I don't know what you're talking about in terms of where you're going with this thing. I well, just no, this is, you, ha- yeah, you haven't seen sex addiction, go- sex, addic- sex addiction is, is a separate thing. Go on. Well, yeah, you, you got to go watch Anthony Weiner's interview with, with uh, or the podcast with Patrick Bed David. It's, there's a section okay. of it that's truly insightful in a, in a bad way. But Anthony Weiner was convicted or he pleaded guilty to 
sending pictures of his junk to a 15 year old kid. And then in in his, in his, in his, you know, I was going to say shtick in his justification. He says, well, you know, I'm going through, I'm going to, I, I suffer from addiction. What's that addiction? I don't know. Is it adoration? Is it attention? Is it whatever? Uh, you know, is it, I used to text people about plumbing. I used to text people about how plumbing works to a 15 year old girl. And then he tried to bring in Weird. sex addiction, sex addiction as a whole. Whereas in sex addiction, you're not committing a crime. You might be abusing of people in a spiritual moral sense. Uh, uh, Russell Brand in his book has an entire, an entire section on this. I can understand. I can understand addiction to sex. You're not addicted to a crime. You're just addicted to something that ruins your life and that makes people hate you. So that's it. I, I'm comfortable now with the distinction: the addiction that leads to the criminality versus the addiction to the criminality. One could have a healing process. The other one makes you a criminal. Okay. So now, how does someone know when they're an addict? Then they 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 have to say it makes my life unmanageable. That's right. That's right. It's a self-diagnosed disease. So you have to diagnose yourself as an addict, which leads us to the current problem of the homeless meth addicts that are on the streets of the of the United States, because any attempt to have them get off the streets, they just refuse any help from anybody or any industry that wants to help them. This tomorrow is going to be an interesting day in street addiction history, because the city of San Diego has tomorrow is beginning to enforce their no camping law. Uh, essentially an anti-homeless street law that will go into effect tomorrow in San Diego. This is going to be very interesting to follow how successful or unsuccessful this new law is uh, uh, or the enforcement of an old law in San Diego to see in terms of homelessness. Because as Dr. Drew and others have gone around the city in L.A., it's something like 90 to 96 percent of the people who are homeless on the streets here in this city, and I assume it's everywhere else, or meth addicts, or addicted to heroin, but it's mostly crystal meth. Do you know of, of that stat? How many are addicted to crystal meth because they were addicted to prescription drugs and then lost that prescription and turned to, to street drugs? That, that's a hard stat to find, but it, it, it's not really relative because now nobody is giving out uh, prescriptions to that particular situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of these kids that I know of in rehab all started with Adderall in lower grades. Let me just give you the Ark of the Covenant here. The uh, And I'm using that as a joke, but the, the Ark of Addiction for, for speed and meth starts with their parents uh, listening to a doctor in preschool, telling them that their hyper kid needs Adderall, and they are given Adderall in third, fourth, and fifth grade. In fact, when I meet these kids, I simply say to them, uh, as meth addicts, when did your parents get you onto Adderall? And they look at me like, how did you know? And every single one of them, eventually the prescription is cut off, Eva, and they have to go to the street. And that might be 10 years later, it might be six years later, but whatever it is, at some point, no doctor is going to give you uh, these extended prescriptions of these drugs. Hence the uh, direction towards the street to get these street drugs, which are now cut with fentanyl, which is another chapter in the story. And that what you just said there really pisses me off because the amount of people I know who take their kids for behavioral disorders. And Absolutely. I see first thing the doctor's going to say is get the kid on a, uh, on Adderall, get him on. What's the other one for um, hyperactivity? Uh, Ritalin. 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 They're going to say yeah. that. They're, they're going to say that. And then if you don't do it, it it's going to be a liability because you're not listening to the doctor. You might be a defiant yeah. parent. And then well, the, the first move should be, 
if you're the doctor, how much sugar intake is your child having? And then the parent doesn't want to alter the diet of the child. They'd rather take the easier. I swear to God, I've talked to the parents. I've talked to the parents about it. And they just said, no, I, that, that was too much. It was a bridge too far to take away the corn sugar, sugar frosted flakes. I'd rather have my child on Ritalin. And I just look at them in astonishment. It's like the, there was a bit, I forget who it was, but it was, about, I, I do anything to sleep better, doctor. Give me, give me Ativan, give me something. Doctor's like, don't look at your phone for an hour before going to bed. And everyone in the room's like, nope, not doing that. So I can't, I can't five, not doing that. Five minutes, give me five. Nope, nope, I'll do surgery. Um, okay, so this is, uh, it's, it's depressing. Now you get into it's the- It's depressing the, because the, the situation has become, it, it's so advanced right now where the- pharmaceutical drugs that were you used to be able to get pharmaceutical drugs, they now have phony pharmaceutical bottles to sell phony pharmaceutical drugs. I know it's hard for people to understand where this has gone to, but every single drug on the street is now made out of fentanyl. Uh, Xanax is made out of fentanyl. The phenobarbitals are made out of fentanyl. Cocaine is now fentanyl. And people are just, they can't believe what I'm saying. And yet all of the people I know who are dying are dying because they bought something else and died while taking it. They, this is what happened to Robert De Niro's grandson in New York. He was buying Xanax. The Xanax was, was really fentanyl. He OD'd on fentanyl. This is happening every single minute in every city in this country. Fentanyl is being controlled by the drug cartels out of Mexico. They're making entire pharmaceutical lines of drugs that look exactly like them where the kids on the street are now demanding to see the bottle. They're demanding to see the prescription bottle. So they made phony prescription bottles, Viva. All right, Mark, let me, I, I realize I've just fallen way, way behind on the rumble rants, but the top one is going to bring us to a, a, another question, or at least the next chapter of this. Let me just go, for, I'll start from the bottom up. Give me two minutes, Robert. Uh, Robert, Mark. Cup of Suits says Barnes is is still wrong about birthright citizenship. People are so mad about Robert about that. Mandatory about what? keep fighting about the birthright citizenship as to who uh, can run for president and whether oh, or not oh, you oh, have oh, to be. Yeah. It's a constitutional question. I didn't know it was such a, a divisive one. Mandatory, mandatory carry says keep fighting, but I have work to do. Sancho Relaxo says thoughts on Chef Tafari Campbell's drowning. Love you guys. Can't wait for bombs away episode. We'll talk about that tomorrow. <laughs> although although we might get into that tonight. Um, Oh, yeah. All right. And we got Matt Rice says, I discovered America's Untold through Viva. Now I never miss an episode. Great stuff. Bull Gadari says, Mark is the best storyteller in America. I'd love to meet him. Cheryl Gage says, nice job on Timcast Friday. Just wondering, is Tim taller than you? I know that's a fairly low bar. He is much taller than me. <laughs> wow. My, wow my, my kid's almost taller than me. Crazy Guru One says, some of us really need rehab. We are not criminals, but really need help. And I'm, I'm yeah. Crazy Guru, I saw your one on the top there. We're going to get to it. Kitty. Wow, so great to hear this much of your history, Mark. I learned so much from America's Untold Stories in general. Love and respect you even more now. Just a fascinating life. Crazy Guru says, this man is correct. I am dying from alcohol as I can never yeah. reach the same high. Please pray for me. I want to stop, but it is so difficult. We're going to get to the top one, Crazy I get Guru. it, bro. I get it. I get it. Methos 300, 3000 BC says, the salt must flow. And then Crazy Guru says, I'm, this is where we're going to get into makes life unmanageable. I'm an alcoholic, but I've never committed a crime, but I know I am killing myself, which is a crime. Really need help. Please pray for me. Thank you. Yeah. This is the question, yeah. Mark. If it doesn't make your life unmanageable, but you know that it's doing something that might shorten your lifespan. And this is where, like, I don't struggle with addiction full stop. I, I struggle with the idea of addiction. Like, I, I, have, I have a 
theory that life is about substitute. I might have an addictive personality. It's about substituting the unhealthy addictions for the healthy addictions. But if I find out that my coffee every morning is going to shorten my lifespan because it's got sugar and cream in it, am I going to stop it? No. Is that an addiction that's causing my life problems? Probably not. The Red Bull, probably, probably not. not. No, no. It's, it's, um, a, it's about unmanageability, Viva. It's about unmanageability. That's the key phrase here. You, now what, is so, it making like, your life unmanageable? Crazy guru who says, I know that I'm drinking an amount of alcohol that's going to hurt me. Yeah. How does what, how, what, what is the first step that someone does when they say, you I, I, mean, I go think to that's a meeting. All you got to do is, all you got to do is go to a meeting. Just go to a meeting. Let's look it up, go to a meeting and see, and see if it fits when you go to the rooms of AA or NA if, if you're narcotics and see if you, if you can get better and stop without, in other words, anybody could stop using, anybody could stop using for the most part by going to detox. The question is, how do you stay stopped? How do you fill that black hole inside of you that says, I have to put food in there. I have to put sex in there. I have to put narcotics in there. I can't live without filling up that black hole. And what you learn in the rooms is you're going to have to fill it up with spirituality. And the people who are coming into the rooms are spiritually bankrupt. What you have to do is fill it up with a power greater than yourself. And that doesn't necessarily mean God or religion or any Christian belief. You just have to be able to find a power greater than yourself to fill that black hole inside of you with. Now, the power greater than yourself could be the room itself, Eva. It could be a group of people who are, who are clean and sober. That has more power than you. It could be the ocean. It could be the universe. It could be the galaxy. It's got to be something that takes your ego and puts it into a container that doesn't tell you that you're the greatest person on earth all the time. Because the ego has to be shrunk in order to get into recovery and start to uh, recover on a, on a on a long-term scale. And it's a day-by-day process. I mean, I'll give you an example. You can't take six shots of insulin if you're a diabetic and not go into a coma seven days later. It's a daily reprieve from insulin for the diabetic, to make a medical analogy to addiction, if that helps you understand it any better. NIH has compared uh, bronchitis and addiction uh, and addiction and, and a kidney ailment and uh, 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 diabetes to be essentially the same disease. Uh, and I mean that not the same in terms of medical, in terms of being lifelong chronic illnesses that have no cure, that need daily treatment. That's what NIH's definition of those diseases are. That's alcoholism, and that's also uh, diabetes and bronchitis, where you have to use the bronchial asthma device. Uh, NIH compares them all to be about the same. There's no cure for any of them. But what do you say to the person who says, I can't even bring myself to step foot in that room. It's going to be too embarrassing. Someone's going to recognize me. Uh, you know, you're, you're not done. You're not done. You got to be done. When your life becomes unmanageable and your world crashes down around you and you have no choice, that door is open for you to walk through. Nobody's forcing you to go in there. There's nobody looking for increased membership. When you're done, desperate, and, and are willing to surrender, willing to surrender your ego to go in that room. If you need help, they'll stick the hand out of help for you and completely take you under their wing. And there's millions of people who've done that uh, across the across the globe since 1935. I was listening a, a while back, uh, Russell Brand on Joe Rogan, and they're talking about drugs and, uh, you know, psychedelics, Joe. Some people accuse Joe Rogan of being a functional uh, alcoholic, a functional drug addict, and that he, you know, he does the stuff. It obviously is not making his life unmanageable that we know of. 
it might it might behind closed doors who knows but he's yeah. functioning I mean, just was, yeah, I mean unmanageability can also mean unmanageable to have a relationship with a woman unmanageable to start a family unmanageable on various levels it doesn't necessarily mean you can't hold the job it's it's unmanageability of what you determine is unmanageable viva you know what i mean it's not the surface things all the time you may have a home in the suburbs that's worth a lot of money you may have a family i mean i've seen I just, you know, I've seen people who have everything and have an unmanageable life who can't stop using. I mean, Sam Kinison famously said, if you've got $50,000 left for rehab, you don't have a problem. And then he died of of addiction on a highway uh, 15 going to Vegas. First of all, how did he die? Was it an accident or or, head on head on collision? He died. I'm going to do an episode on Sam Kinison in a couple of weeks, but he died in a head on collision with him being high and the teenage driver being high, crashing into each other on the highway to Vegas. Uh, Sam uh, had a chip in his pocket uh, from Alcoholics Anonymous, a 30-day chip, and he had had a a relapse. Um, Is that say both cars, both drivers died and both were on drugs? Yes, yes. That's interesting. Um, Okay, we're going to get into the relapse in a second, but oh, actually, we're getting into it right now because Joe Rogan is talking to Russell Brand, and Joe likes Joe likes to you know he he discusses expanding his intellectual psychic horizons with with um what are they called psychotropic drugs? And Russell I, do, I just want to interject. I just want to interject. Drugs work. I mean, I took a lot of LSD. It expanded my consciousness. There's a lot of artistic benefit for me from taking uh, uh, hallucinogens. I will not ever say that they don't work. They definitely work. It's just not sustainable over a lifetime for people who have addictive genetics. I mean, and he may not have addictive genetics of two parents being addicts like mine were. Uh, both my mother and father were addicts. And the genetics are involved. And there's the social stuff involved. There's no reason to denounce drugs for, for being drugs if they work for you. And they don't, you know, yeah. keep in mind, only 10% of the population are addicts, even 90% are not. But you're talking about maybe 40 million people in the United States alone who are actively addicted. That's well, the 10%, 10% is a lot, but I, I, I would yeah. wonder if the numbers, if the numbers actually higher because of what people might be addicted to could potentially include those who are not included. But, but Rogan says to Russell Brand, he says, you're a different person. Now you're responsible. You can handle these things. You know, why not? And, and I thought that that question itself sort of like ignores the essence of what addiction is, which I would imagine someone who has been clean for, decades like yourself like 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 russell brand where it was getting clean from an addiction that was in fact destroying their lives the biggest problem they could ever possibly say to themselves is i'm I'm a different person now i'm strong enough i'm able to keep it under control now does that does that ever work with anybody or once someone has said i'm an addict and i have a problem that's making my life well it's it's just just, there's a slogan that the disease is doing push-ups inside of you while you're even in recovery says it doesn't go away and it comes back much stronger if you do have a relapse, uh, many people reported that once relapsing, they had reached their pinnacle of uh, drug use and abuse so quickly as to come crawling back into recovery, shredded within weeks. You know, if they're lucky, um, the disease doesn't go away. It may trick you or deceive you into thinking that it's okay to use now, but that's a mind game that the disease is playing on your mind. And using another another substance is another mind game because you could say to yourself, well, I never had a problem with weed. So now the coke addict does weed and his defenses are now lowered 
He's not happy with the weed high and his drug of choice, which is cocaine, is now knocking on the door because the weed has lowered his his defense shields of the Starship Enterprise. And he's now getting a beacon in his head saying, go back to your original drug. Uh, This weed is not cutting it to give you just a rough example of how the crazy mind works. All right. Now, um, I'll see if I have any more questions about the actual that process, but that, that covers it. It's, it's fascinating from a in, in, insight perspective. The corruption of the rehab industry ah, in yes. California. Bring it full circle back, and then we're going yeah. to we'll go to local. I mean, it, it comes. It starts with the cure. It starts with the cure. Everything's the cure. Um, if you have the cure for an incurable disease, think about what I just said. This is an incurable disease, according to the American Medical Association, according to NIH, according to every expert in the world. Um, if we still believe these experts about this particular subject, uh, this is an incurable disease. If you could pay X amount of money to go to a luxury facility and be cured, you would pay that. And these rehabs started to spring up in uh, California that claim to give you the cure after 28 days or 60 days of attendance in these places. And I remember calling the Federal Trade Commission at one point and saying, are you investigating these phony cure remedies for addiction and they said we don't have the manpower we focus on phony cancer cures only because we don't have the money or the manpower to go after phony addiction cures a fascinating interview uh, with the federal trade commission that i did um explaining why they don't go after phony addiction cures so the, the the charlatans know there is no sheriff coming after them viva to sum it up well, not that I've been blackpilled, but I might very well have been. Is there any idea about the FTC, uh, not the FTC, um, whoever, whatever the body was, that says we're not, we don't have the manpower for this. And whoa, it's rife now for not just selling fake cures, but for blackmail and extortion within a community that is easily and very, you know, potentially lucratively blackmailed and extorted. Um, do you think that the reluctance to enforce anything has anything to do with some sort of b- broader plot? to enable black, uh, uh, what's the word I was just looking for? Blackmail and extortion within the addiction community of those who have the money to be extorted? Uh, no. I, <laughs> there's so much money to be made in these luxury rehabs. Uh, and I, I want to delineate that there are rehabs still in in, in, in LA and other places that are $5,000 a month. What I'm talking about is rehabs that are eighty-five dollars to $120,000 a month in cash, upfront, no insurance, and you're put into a place um, like a five-star spa resort, and they're telling you that you're going to have the, the, the cure for addiction once you come out of here. This has been an abject failure. They have attempted to sue with very little success in the courts. Um, there's a lot of caveats involved. And now a lot of these luxury rehabs have gone away from a 12-step model and uh, gone to a straight non 12 step model where people are coming there for an easier, softer way. The 12 step model being just to explain the, the types of rehabs, there's the Betty Ford Hazelton model, which is a 12 step model rehab. Those are the mid price model rehabs. They're nonprofits, but they're about 50,000 to 35 to 50,000 a month. The lower end working class models are about $5,000 a month, they're a little rougher. And then there's the luxury model. So there's three tiers of rehabs in the country, three different tiers. And um, the ones that are that I covered, I, well, I covered them all. I went undercover. And I went undercover one time in one called Impact, 
which is a low-end um, prison-like rehab in Pasadena that's legendary. It's been there since 19, the 1950s, and uh, a lot of prisoners in there, and it's very prison-like culture. And I went undercover in there to see what that was like, and I wrote an article about that. That was terrifying because I couldn't get out, and uh, you can follow that story if you want uh, on one this of our episodes. A, that's like yeah, the, that, um, the, the the psychopath test where, you know, the people pretend to be mentally unwell to get out of prison, but then yeah, they can't get yeah, out yeah. of the institutions. Yeah, wow. that's kind of almost what happened to me, yeah, at Impact. But then I also, you know, I've written about other rehabs and gone undercover doing that, and I've actually um, worked with authorities on occasion, uh, DEA and the district attorney's office, to help uh, shut down corrupt rehabs in LA. It's fascinating. Okay, we're, we're gonna we're gonna uh, what is the word bookmark or I don't think there's anything I forgot to ask, but I'm gonna go to the chat to see if there's any questions. Uh, what what a little a white pill or silver lining for people who have problems? What's the first step? And uh, Russell Brand talks about the twelve step program as though not that it's the the the, the cure, but that it is the system. The full uh, everything is included in it to 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 enable you to deal with your addiction. What should people do? And does the twelve? Yeah, step I mean, it's not it's not complicated. All you have to do is is, is uh, you know let go of your ego. Your there's a saying um, among the Latinos in L.A. Your ego is not your amigo in recovery. Um, so it's kind of an interesting take. But uh, all you have to do is walk into a 12-step room and just say, raise your hand and tell them your name and take it from there and just listen and sit in the back and shut up and, and see what they say. It's not complicated. And if it doesn't work for you, you'll, they'll refund your money, you know, which is zero, of course. The 12-step the, the, the rooms are the anathema to um, the recovery industry because they're free, Viva. There are psychologists and psychiatrists who refuse to send their patients even though they know they're addicts to the 12-step recovery problem uh, process because they know one thing, they never come back. And they, the, the corrupt psychiatrist and the corrupt psychologist, and people have said this for years, who finally found a 12-step room and got rid of their psychiatrists and psychologists, uh, they never told me about these rooms. And the, the, the honest ones will tell their patients about those rooms. The dishonest ones who don't want to lose them and lose the money will never mention it. And so many people have told me that they, you know, everybody lies to their therapist about the amount of drug use. They go in, it's a, a traditional joke. They go, yeah, I have a couple of drinks a week. It's a lie. You know, they're drinking around the clock. The therapist knows this. He never really calls them on it, never sends them to AA or any program because they don't want to lose the patient. They know that if they send you to those rooms, you're not coming back. And that is one of the dark secrets of uh, addiction therapy. Put it that way, uh, private addiction therapy. Fascinating. Okay, let me let me read these chats here. There came four more came in. Um, Crazy Guru One says, "I went to AA and was severely judged and shunned when I relapsed. I am non-functional al alcoholic from Scotland." Matt Reese says, I defiantly went to my first court-ordered AA meeting and it changed my life. The second person I saw was a guy I partied with 10 years prior. He became my sponsor and I am now 10 years sober. That's Bravo. Fantastic. That's a model. That's that's an exact model of how it should work. And that's from the courts. That's from the court model. Crazy Guru says, I could not even I could not even 100 a month. And then we got right. Chang Love says, off topic, but will you please look seriously into the Nova Scotia rampage involving Gabriel Wartman with Mark? 
Aren't you somewhat curious why it was reframed but uh, reframed by the Nova Scotia Mass Casualty Commission? I've looked into it a little bit. I don't, I don't do the uh, – sorry, I just want to make sure I didn't take the wrong window up. I don't do the hush-hushes like Barnes only because – I'm never sure when I know enough about anything to do a, to do what Barnes is. And we, we only do American stories, by the way. So that's that's the answer for me. We only cover And, and for, for those who don't know, it's a it's a wild not it's a wild conspiracy because it's this guy who went on a shooting rampage that lasted if it wasn't 24 hours, it was the it was well over 12 hours in what is not known to have been either a fake RCMP car or a real RCMP car. Yeah, it's a weird uh, story. What is the oh, deal no. with that? And he had withdrawn $450,000 from a private banking bank, uh, you know, prior to this event. Police did. Oh, he was wearing a uh, RCMP uniform. Police wow. didn't disclose until the next day that the murderer was still on the loose in an RCMP uniform in a trial. Wow. It, it's wild. And then, uh, but, but I, I, I've, I've talked about it. I just don't do the, the I, I have a specific episode on it, actually, because this all happened, you know, right at the beginning of COVID. And uh, the the government obviously jumped on this to enforce more gun restrictions in Canada. Um, okay, so let's let's we'll do a few more minutes here. Then we're going to go over to. Do you have a few more minutes to come to locals? Yeah, go. I don't care. Yeah, okay, sure. And we'll take some. We'll take some exclusive questions there. VivaBarnesLaw.locals.com. A lot of Mark, a lot what? of our audiences overlap. I mean, I go over to your locals. I see the same people that are on mine. Oh, so for sure. Not, I see the same. It, yeah, yeah. Now, same people but they're, commenting so, now. They're all going to know probably some of the answers to this question. Uh, Where, uh, politically speaking, these days, what's your take on what's going on? Oh, we'll get into the indictment after indictment and corruption after corruption. Uh, DeSantis Trump battle. What's what's your take on that? And I agree with Barnes. I've always agreed with Robert on this. I mean, uh, his campaign's done. I mean, he's finished, and his career is finished. He got the book deal from Rupert Murdoch. Uh, I think that's why he began this insane campaign that's going nowhere. It's a phony campaign. Um, he will remain governor of Florida as long as he can. And then the book deal will take care of his family uh, probably the rest of his life. And I, I think he's completely melted down any chance of ever uh, uh, competing in this area again because of his um, attacks on Trump. Uh, and now speaking of the attacks on Trump, Mark, you have have you always been political, or have you only gotten more political? Yeah, no. It, it's it, my grandfather was the uh, campaign manager to the mayor of New York. Uh, he was a Brooklyn ward leader, Jack Bloom. He was a campaign manager for a reform mayor in 1952, named Impelatieri. Uh, so we had politicians coming in and out of the house for years. As a, uh, when I was growing up as a as a Democratic ward leader, he was involved in the uh, Meet Esposito Democratic machine in uh, South Brooklyn. I was going to pull up. You had sent me a video, a TikTok of a man who spent $15,000 to look like a collie or to look like his dog. Where did you, did you texted that to me. You didn't, you didn't, I can't pull it up so easily. Um, Some Japanese guy uh, spent his life savings to have designed and become a collie uh, in, I think in Japan. And he is wheeled around on a gurney by an assistant then other dogs come up and 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 smell him, and he uh, looks like a, the, the work is impeccable. It looks like something that you know Hollywood would do, and he looks like Lassie. And um, you know, no, you know I just, we'll we'll end on that as we as we go. Over. I'm going to send this to myself so I can bring it up. It's yeah, it's just a weird story. Yeah, I mean, he's small enough, I guess, as a Japanese man to fit into the collie suit. Uh, and he lays on a gurney and, you know, there's, there's some video of him playing with a ball 
and doing some other canine behavior. But apparently his dream his whole life was to be a dog. Life savings to become Koei. It's not coming fast enough. Man from Japan. Here you go. All right, people. Stuff you didn't know that you needed to know. And then we're going to go over to, to vivabarnslaw.locals.com and take some, the, the, the chat questions there. Man from Japan. Here we go. Skip. Oh, Brickhouse Nutrition. Fieldofgreens.com, people. Promo code Viva. All right, skip ads. Uh, we'll just go real. Just look at this. Oh, there he is. The music off just in case there's a copy. Look at him. It, it, I was looking at it. My, 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 <laughs> say my kids. They're like, they said, oh, it looks, a weird I mean, the, the dogs are fooled by him. The dogs. <laughs> kind of... Oh, all right. Well, that, that's uh, on the lighter side of things. Mark, so what, what do you have on for this week? What do you have on for the 60th anniversary oh, of uh, the JFK assassination? Uh, okay, I don't want to get into the 60th, but I do want to say we got Curtis LeMay on Tuesday. Curtis bombs away LeMay, who single-handedly ended World War II with the firebombing of Tokyo and uh, 67 other cities in Japan, uh, something he came up with. Um, we're going to get into that. He runs with uh, George Wallace as vice president in 1968. He invents the Strategic Air Command and uh, supervises the uh, uh, atomic bomb operation in, in uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima, but that's a separate story. But he uh, is single-handedly invents the United States Air Force. And we're going to get into uh, Curtis LeMay on uh, Tuesday of America's Untold Stories. And we also, I don't, I don't want to get into the, the 60th anniversary because that is going to be a technological uh, AI type of thing that's going to be, I think, first of its kind. But we are having a meetup Labor Day weekend in Montgomery, Alabama, which I did want to mention because we had gone to your meetup, Eric and I, in Vegas, and that was a blast. So we finally found a place in Montgomery, Alabama to do our first meetup, which is going to be Labor Day weekend. Um, it's going to be in a hotel uh, down there. It's a red state. We have a guy named Greg Budell who I do a live radio show with every Thursday out of Montgomery. So we're going to have a live radio simulcast of the event while we're doing a live episode of America's Untold Stories with live music and raffles and games and drinking and food and everything else. Uh, Sunday, September 3rd, down in Montgomery. We're going to have a VIP meetup on Saturday, September 2nd in the hotel for VIP uh, uh, hookups. And we're going to just do it up. And um, where can people find tickets and where can people find you? They, through Eric Hunley on structured.locals.com, which is our locals page. You can buy tickets there. If you can't make it, we'll refund it. It's not a risk to you. Uh, Eric has various price points on how to do this um, at unstructured.locals.com, which is our locals page. And uh, people from both locals are coming. So we're going to see some of uh, the uh, Viva it, Barnes crew. And we met, I met a bunch of you guys when I was in, well, in Vegas. I'm, I'm going to get to one of those chats. It's in our locals community yeah. because someone, someone brought yeah. that up. And I'm going to do my best to make it there if I can. I've never been to Alabama before. So it'd be very cool. All right, Mark. So what we're going to do now, everybody. First of all, everyone, thank you for being here. Uh, tomorrow, 5 o'clock, we're going to have the Sunday Viva Barnes Law Show at 5 o'clock on a Monday. It's Taco Tuesday on a Thursday. What, what were you going to say? Me? Oh, yeah. No, no, you, okay, no, 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 <laughs> you're talking to me. Um, oh, yeah, throwing up, you're throwing up gang signs up there. So, everybody, come on over to vivabarnslaw.locals.com. Hold on. Is this – who's this? this? You all have the link. I'm gonna, I'll put the link up one more time. We're going to go carry on the exclusive portion there, take some questions. 
because uh, I see some from Mark. That's it. Everyone enjoy the weekend, and I will see you all, at least the Rumble portion. I'll see you all tomorrow. Locals, hang around. We're coming over in three, two, one, now.